Kelly Mundy, Duke Plastic Surgery Residents on the Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. We're excited to announce the launch of our website, theresidentreview.com, and we invite you all to visit our website for episodes, scripts, resources, and more. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message from our sponsors. This episode is, um, again, part of our back to basics section um, designed to help people who are new to plastic surgery or even those who just need a little review, talk about some of the basics in our field and um, help us continue to learn. So without further ado, Lily. Hey, (laughs) thanks so much for that introduction. Um, As Rosie mentioned, my name is Lily. I'm one of the graduating chief residents at Duke, and we are going to continue our back to basics segment on flap failures and and how we're evaluating flaps. How do they fail? Why do they fail? When we're taking care of flaps on the, on the floor or when we're evaluating patients on rounds, what are we looking for? Mm-hmm. How are we judging if this flap is alive or not? If you're going to present, what do you talk about? Exactly. How do you talk about the flap? Exactly. When you're rounding, exactly. So when you're rounding on your patient in the morning, what are you looking for when you're evaluating that flap? And what's the language that you're going to use to convey to your team that, that you actually know what you're talking about? Yeah. When you're calling your seniors in the middle of the night. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, all right, let's first start out with why flaps fail. And this is going to be sort of a combination of free flaps and pedicle flaps. Some of what we're going to talk about is really only relevant to flaps where you're doing a new anastomosis, but some of these issues are going to be relevant to all flaps. So overview, flaps can have an issue with the arterial inflow. They can have an issue with venous outflow. They could have a reperfusion injury. They could have infection or inflammation. Often this leads to thrombosis. This could be in the setting of an inadequate debridement. And a lot of these failures are gonna happen a little bit later than the the initial everything else we've talked about. You could have a hematoma that causes compression. You could have edema of the flap in a a restricted environment. So the flap doesn't have room to swell because it was inset tightly. It's expanding against a bone. It doesn't have space to expand. Or you could have pressure from a dressing. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about issues with arterial inflow. So you could have a flap that could have a thrombosis, the pedicle could be kinked or twisted, there could be compression, again, that could be from a hematoma, there could be tension on your pedicle, so maybe you didn't have quite enough length and you're trying to stretch it a little bit too more too much. There could also be technical injuries to the intima that will lead to thrombosis or external pressure that leads to thrombosis. Rosie, if you're going to have an arterial failure of your flap, when does that most likely happen? Um, So it's most likely to happen within, at least in the OR or within the first 24 hours. Awesome. Yeah. So a lot of times when um, we are monitoring our flaps, initially after the anastomosis, we're evaluating the flap, we're looking for pulsatile flow. We might be listening with a Doppler, maybe a handheld Doppler or placing like a implantable Doppler around that vessel we're very dialed into the quality of that Doppler sound or the visual pulsations, how the flap is bleeding, if it's warm and pink and its coloration in the OR, because we know most commonly those issues with arterial inflow are gonna happen pretty quickly after the anastomosis. Alternatively, there can be issues with venous outflow that occur similarly in the operating room, but these are also going to represent a lot of the issues that happen outside of the OR with increased time from surgery. And similar to issues with arterial inflow, you can have the same reasons to have issues with venous outflow. There could be a thrombosis in the vein. This could be, you know, maybe due to a technical, technical injury, or there could be um, the, 
the, the vein could be kinked, twisted, compressed. There could be too much tension on it, sort of all the same reasons that we have arterial inflow. It's really important to tell when you're, when you're, when you think your flap's not succeeding, it's important to try to understand if this is an arterial problem or a venous problem, because this could influence, you know, where you might target your intervention. Rosie, what do you feel like when you're looking at a flap, the signs are of an arterial insufficiency versus a venous insufficiency? So my biggest telltale when I'm looking at these is color. Um, and so that's one of the ways, that's one of the first ways you can, uh, you can look at a flap when you get out of the OR. So I look at color, I look at temperature, I look at, um, how it feels. And then we have a couple other evaluation techniques that we'll talk about too. Um, like the Dopplers and the bioptics or tissue oxygenation sensors. Um, but my, your biggest thing is going to be a clinical exam. So look at the color. If it's white, it's not getting blood flow. Um, and you have to make sure that you're evaluating it in comparison to the donor tissue versus the tissues that you're actually, you, you put it attached to. So like, if you're looking at a breast flap and you took it from the belly, um, your, your tissue color is not going to match the rest of the breast skin. It's going to match the belly. So it may look a lot paler compared to the yeah. chest tissue, especially if you have a patient that has some radiation changes mm -hmm. in, in their chest from, from breast cancer. So I feel like you hit on like a lot of really important concepts and really important things. So we're going to kind of transition from sort of the etiologies of failure to then how we're going to evaluate for failure. So just to summarize reasons that flaps are going to fail is you're going to have a problem with arterial inflow with the venous outflow, maybe a reperfusion injury, infection, inflammation, a hematoma, edema, or pressure. And the issues with the arterial and the venous outflow could be similar types of things such as the technical, you know, the technical skill or, you know, injuries to the vessels or compression from a hematoma. All right. Ways that we're monitoring the flap are very similar in the OR and on the floor often with maybe one or two exceptions. But just like Rosie said, clinical exam is the number one important thing that you're going to do to evaluate your flap. And that's something that we get tested on. What's the most reliable evaluation? Clinical exam every single time. And so Rosie started to talk a little bit about how she's monitoring it. What is she looking for? So she discussed color. She said, if a flap is pale, then I'm concerned that it's not getting enough um, arterial inflow. Alternatively, we describe flaps to be congested when we think that there might be an issue with the venous outflow. Often this congested color can appear purple um, or dark. Rosie also mentioned cap refill. So you'll, you know, you'll frequently see cap refill noted as like less than two seconds. So if the cap refill is really slow, then again, we're getting concerned about arterial inflow. If the cap refill is really fast, um, then we're concerned that there's not enough um, venous outflow. Rosie mentioned temperature. So we're thinking about how warm the flap is, how warm is it compared to the surrounding skin? Rosie, what are you looking for when you do like a pinprick or scratch test? And is that something that a medical student should do, or maybe even an intern, or is that a scenario where you probably have already sort of activated your, your flap evaluation response? <laughs> flap evaluation response. I love that. Um, so in terms of a pinprick test, this is a test that you can use to evaluate the color of the blood that is returning from your pinprick. And that helps because when we're talking about the color of the blood, it helps to determine, you know, is it slow to get back? Is it fast to get back? Is it dark like Venus? Is it light like arterial blood? Um, so specifically in our institution, and I think I, this can probably be generalized to most places, it's always safer to activate your flap response team or call your senior and let them know you're worried first. Um, 
our specifically at our institution, we don't do a lot of pinprick testing. Um, and or I think, if, or if we do, I'll just jump in and say, like, if we are concerned about the flap, then by all means, doing a pinprick or a scratch test can be like incredibly informative. Yes, this can show us what the color of the blood is. However, most patients that you know are awake and with it, it might cause them some anxiety for us to be doing this. So, like Rosie mentioned, if you're concerned to where you're doing a pinprick then it's often best to have other people on your team who are mm-hmm. going to be helping make clinical evaluation, helping make decision-making, deciding if we're going back to the OR, what our pathway is, like activate the team. Yeah. This is not something that you would typically do as part of a routine exam for your patient in the morning when you're seeing the patient. Is that right. Correct? And even if you're worried, like you, you don't want to do it because think about it this way, like you don't want to have to do it more than once because it's just not or many it. times. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so call your team and so you can all look at it together. I love that idea. Okay. So other things you might be looking for on your physical exam is looking for hematoma. Um, often, you know, seroma is something we're going to think about more as an outpatient or more sort of a couple of days, you know, to weeks after surgery. Mm-hmm. Right on. Typically when we, when we have a palpable fluid collection right around surgery, we're thinking that this is probably a hematoma. So you mentioned that there was like a couple other things we could do, like a Doppler or um, a tissue oxygenation type of sensor. Mm-hmm. These are great um, techniques and, and great advances in technology that we've had. And I know there are more coming down the pike. Um, there's always more, but the most common things we'll see are implantable Dopplers. Um, and so that's a, a small piece of silicone that wraps around your anastomosis and it helps you. It, it's, it's an implantable Doppler. So you can turn on the box and listen to it. Um, you can listen to your flow within your artery or vein as you're sitting there with the patient awake. There's like a small little wire that, that peeks out of the skin and attaches to this box. Awesome. So in the OR, many of you may have seen us using these, that these are used at your institution, but like Rosie mentioned, there's a little piece of silicone that has a probe connected to it, connected to a wire that then comes out the skin, connects to a box. Um, and then the whole wire, the wire can be removed at a later date. That silicone probe that goes around the vessel will stay. And in addition to having an implantable Doppler, a lot of times we use a handheld Doppler. Mm -hmm. Um, Reasons to use a handheld Doppler are many. Um, First of all, the implantable Dopplers are expensive and they're not necessarily routine in all institutions. Um, This also allows you to listen to the blood flow with a handheld Doppler that's actually coming into your flap, maybe through a perforator that you'd marked in the OR. However, if you are going to bury this flap, there's no visible skin paddle for monitoring, then an implantable Doppler is awesome because mm-hmm. it allows you to listen to your flap. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing we use is like, we, we use a, um, a tissue oxygenation sensor. So that helps us um, kind of similar to the way that a pulse ox measures the tissue oxygenation of a patient in their finger. This measures the tissue oxygenation. It's like a, a small little pad that sits on the skin of a flap. Um, and it helps just monitor the tissue oxygenation of the flap. Um, so we don't actually, when we're looking at the numbers on this tissue oxygenation sensor, we don't necessarily look at the number itself. We look at trends. So when you're coming out of the OR, after you've placed this on the skin to monitor, you may see that like one side, if you have two flaps, one side may have a a number sitting at 40 and one side may have a number sitting at 80. It doesn't necessarily mean the one at 80 is doing better. It just helps you get a baseline and you get worried when you see a trend, like a downtrending tissue oxygenation. Um, you will FYI, don't freak out. You will see a drop after you leave the OR because anesthesia pre-oxygenates the patient prior to extubation. And so they will have a much higher tissue oxygenation 
prior to excavation, then it'll fall because yeah. anything that affects the body oxygenation, like oxygen, or I think William mentioned sleep apnea before those things will all affect the same way that it would a pulse ox. You'll see it drop. Exactly. So like often you'll get to pack you, your patient will have some external oxygen on like their nasal cannula. And maybe then they're trying to wean that. Then you might note that it goes down a little bit funny also, or funny. Another funny thing is that it's impacted by light overhead light. So yes. sometimes if the light is on the patient, it can change the sensors, but all of these things kind of are just going into this idea that um, there's sort of a lot of like noise in this number. And there's a lot of changes that are, are not necessarily interpretable. So we tend to have like a threshold, like around 10 to 15% difference, like abrupt change is then that's when we get concerned. Mm -hmm. And this is really great for picking up on venous compromise for your flap. And that's really, um, what at least at our institution, we find it to be most helpful for. All right. So we've talked about like a lot of awesome things, Rosie. <laughs> We talked about why flaps fail. We went through several different issues, arterial inflow, venous outflow, um, reperfusion injury, infection, inflammation, hematoma, edema, or pressure. We also talked about how we're gonna evaluate that flap. You're looking for color, cap refill, temperature, um, hematoma, your Doppler, your tissue oxygenation sensor. And then um, if you're concerned about the flap, you're gonna do a pinprick or a scratch. So, this may be on your test question or um, when you're managing patients clinically, if you're concerned about the viability of the flap, what is always the thing you're going to do, especially early on? Um, so if you think that you're having trouble with the flap or that it is not succeeding, your first move is always returning to the OR. Yeah, that's often your, your test question answer. Flap salvage rates go down the longer out from surgery. So it is possible that um, you might see a scenario if you had a patient had a flat failure day four, day five, day six, day seven, that this may not be attempted to be salvaged at your, at your given institution. Um, and that would, would just be because the, the decreasing likelihood of success for that salvage. However, that might not be the case. It's hard for us to say, but that could sort of give you some context if, if you were to see something like that. Um, when you're going back to the operating room in the setting of a failed flap, you are going to kind of be going through all of those factors. Like let's, let's evaluate the anastomoses. Is there kinking? Is there stretching? Is there a hematoma that's contributing to this? Um, is my anastomosis thrombosed or is it open? If it's thrombosed, are we redoing things? Um, do we have adequate venous drainage? You know, maybe our, our anastomoses are open, but our flap is still congested. This could happen like in a deep flap where um, a patient may be reliant on their superficial drainage. Awesome. Last two things in this topic are leeches and HBO. Like really, we use leeches? <laughs> we, we use leeches. Wow. Okay, <laughs> why do you use leeches for a patient? So we use leeches if there's venous congestion. They attach and they secrete this um, substance called hirudin. Awesome. And it thins the blood and it allows for some venous outflow. Um, those patients often get placed on antibiotics. Is that correct? That is correct because leeches carry aromonas. And so you need to place them on something with gram negative coverage. So usually that's like often we use Cipro, Cipro. Or, or Bactrim. And then lastly, we sometimes use HPO or hyperbaric oxygen therapy. This is where you're basically placing a patient in a setting where, um, they are getting increased oxygenation. And we actually use this for everything. We use this for venous congestion, <laughs> arterial insufficiency, edema management, and generally it's just part of the kitchen sink that may be placed on a flap that's not doing well. <laughs> that's true. 
And um, then I want to make sure, and specifically for anybody who's like a sub I or an intern or anyone who wants a refresher, Lily, from a senior resident perspective, when somebody is coming to you and trying to present how a flap looks, or if they're worried about a flap, what kind of stuff do you want to know? And how, how would you like them to present that information? Yeah. So I think it kind of depends like how casual that presentation is going to be. This is your morning rounds presentation. Obviously in a surgical setting, you want to be really concise um, and use your soap format. You know, this is um, so-and-so patient. They are this age. They are post-op day one from this procedure. It was uncomplicated. You know, you'll be giving me any like pertinent updates. Um, and then when you're describing the flap, um, I would love to hear somebody say, um, you know, I examined the flap. It was warm and well perfused. Cap refill was this. Um, this was the temperature. This was the color. I didn't palpate any fluid collections. Um, mm -hmm. I listened to a handheld Doppler or I listened to the implantable Doppler describe the quality of the Doppler that they heard. Then they're going to give me the rest of the updates on the patient. Um, if you know, you're concerned that this patient has a hematoma, then do they have labs? That could be a component of what mm -hmm. you're looking at or what is, you know, hemodynamically, what's their status, all of those types of things. Mm -hmm. If you, if you ever are in a situation where you see a patient and you feel worried and you feel the need to, well, you should immediately, if you feel worried at all, or notice anything different, call for just help. advance it up the chain, just yeah. run it up the chain, load the boat. Um, there's no, definitely nothing wrong with doing that. You should, you should always do that. Yeah. People may get annoyed at, at you for calling about certain things, but I would hope when it comes to flaps and the viability of a flap, um, at least in our perspective and in our institution, we are way like over the top excited. Mm -hmm. Please call me when you're at all concerned mm -hmm. rather than, you know, making assumptions or decisions because in these scenarios, time is, is definitely of the essence mm -hmm. of getting a flat back to the operating room. Yeah. And you don't need to be alarmist. Um, but you can definitely say, I noticed this change and I wanted to make sure that someone else was aware. Awesome. Well, Rosie, I think this was great. Yeah. Um, I think this gave like a great overview of a lot of basics for why flaps fail, how we're evaluating flaps, um, and hopefully give students um, and maybe incoming residents some, some good language to kind of talk and describe these issues. Mm -hmm. This was awesome. Yeah, well, thanks so much for joining us, Lily. And uh, thank you all so much for listening to our discussion today. Hopefully it's helpful. Um, so please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to The Resident Review wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to share these episodes with your friends so we can continue to make our community of plastic surgeons better together. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.